Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Over the course of this global crisis in which various forms of isolation has become the new norm, uh, it's critical that we organise to overcome these challenges and Dunn Street has partnered with organisations across Australia and the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise in their communities. Uh, and in 2020, Dunn Street will continue to work with those folks and others to make a difference, inspire, give hope and build communities from the ground up. And to find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Hello, my name is Stephen Donnelly and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your favourite number one weekly centre-left political and cultural podcast that dives into the progressive issues of the day and the people leading them from both home and abroad. Um, we took a couple of weeks off there, just got a little busy. Uh, needed a break, that kind of stuff. Um, but we're back. Uh, we've got a whole heap of episodes lined up. Uh, very excited about that. And in fact, on today's episode, we are speaking to a clinical psychologist, Dr. Michelle Lim from the uh, Swinburne University in Melbourne. And she specializes in uh, social isolation, risk and loneliness. And uh, she's on the episode today to talk about that. And obviously, because coronavirus has all the restrictions placed upon our society because of coronavirus and the pandemic, um, people are going to be feeling lonely. So we thought we'd get Michelle on to come and have a chat, chat about that and some of the work that she is doing. And she's actually doing a really, really important study at the moment. And in the bio for the podcast um, on your podcast app, um, there is a link to the work that she's doing. And um, you should do, go check that out as well. Really important stuff. Um, speaking of the bio and the link and all that kind of stuff, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and your favorite podcast app and if you are on apple podcast don't forget to leave us a rating and a review and obviously as always follow us on all the various social media platforms uh, dunn street on facebook dunn street on twitter dunn street on instagram and dunn street on linkedin and another thing the final thing before we go to today's episode um, Dunn Street and Socially Democratic are working in conjunction with La Trobe University's uh, Arts Humanities Department, uh, particularly in their media and communications um, uh, section. I should know the name of it, given that I went to La Trobe University myself. Um, but we have got an internship program um, and we're providing opportunities for students who are studying media and communications to get some first-hand experience in producing a podcast. And so we began this program with Latrobe at the start of this year, the start of this semester, and this is our very first episode that's been produced by one of the students. So I'd like to thank uh, Pamela Kirakides for her great work in uh, producing this episode from Go to Woe or from Woe to Go, whichever way that goes. Um, so great work, uh, very talented young woman, uh, and she's done a great job with this episode, as she will do with the rest of the episodes for the rest of the semester. No pressure, Pam. Uh, but uh, let's get to today's episode. We're taping this one on a Friday morning in uh, downtown Melbourne and on the line um, is the senior lecturer in clinical psychology, uh, Dr. Michelle Lim. Welcome to Socially Democratic. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Now, you're, as I said before, you're a senior lecturer in clinical psychology and lead the Social Health Wellbeing Laboratory at uh, Swinburne University here in Melbourne. Just a bit of background on yourself um, and how you got into uh, psychology. Can you pinpoint a moment 
um, as a young person that influenced you to dis, uh, to pursue a career in in this field? Um, I I could think of many moments. I think probably the most pivotal is um, meeting a very influential psychologist, an American psychologist, um, when I was younger, and um, I thought that he was. Um, eloquent, he was sensible, he really kind of spoke about understanding or trying to really understand the, the kind of more silent processes around uh, uh, how people uh, interact. And and that actually pivoted me towards, you know, really trying to, to think about what career path I wanted, you know, and actually meeting those kinds of role models seemed to be very important for many young people. And it it didn't dawn on me though that it was a very difficult pathway that I did choose because you know if you, you choose, everyone pretty much wants to do psychology when they were younger and and realizing you know the, the breadth of knowledge that you do have to be good at not just you know in reading people understanding those nuances but also statistical analyses and you know all the academic rigor that goes along with it so it's a little bit of a a learning curve and you almost have to be you know good at you know all aspects really especially when you are a researcher in this field you just said an interesting sentence that just jogged in my memory as a high school student you said when i was younger everybody wanted to do psychology that's true i forgot about that there was a period there where and i don't know if it's still the case but everyone wanted to do psychology why was that or why is that (laughs) Very, very good point. And I remember as well being a first year uh, university uh, student at Melbourne University. And I remember, you know, everyone was enrolled in Psychology 101. And there were like multiple classes of, you know, you know, lectures that we had, to, they had to actually put up. And, you know, in each lecture, we had thousands of people. <laughs> and I remember there was this, uh, I can't actually remember which lecture it was, but he basically said, how many of you would like to be psychologists? And everyone puts up their hand. And it's like, well, okay, so maybe 10 of you might make it into the program. And it was really interesting. I had the same feedback from my GP very recently. She said, you're a psychologist. You know, I really wanted to go down that path, but I just thought it was too difficult. So I ended up in medical school, which I wow. thought was a little bit ironic. I was like, oh, really? Medical school is easier to get into psychology? She's like, yeah, absolutely. And I decided to go down the medical route because I didn't have to go through this calling process as, as they, they we, we put it, mm. basically making you jump hoops to kind of make, you know, so that you can actually proceed to the next steps. So it's been a little bit of a learning curve. So I think most people don't realize that, you know, we have to jump through all that training and, and we should because really, you know, psychology is, is one of those uh, professions that really... Um, are, you know, have to be an ethical and responsible professions because we are taking care of the most vulnerable in our, in our society. So I understand this um, this need to basically, uh, you know, develop very stringent uh, and rigorous training programs. I had a uh, I had a very similar experience in first year uni as well uh, in the archaeology class that I took and the lecturer and it was packed. It was at La Trobe University in the Agora Theatre. And I remember the lecturer said, now, if anyone is in here because they think archaeology is about Indiana Jones and chasing Nazis <laughs> and whips uh, and riding off the back of cars, leave now. So I got up and left. <laughs> That's a, yeah, I guess everyone has this, you know, idealistic view of what, what you know, archaeologists is or what, you know, whatever 
those professions are, but really, you know, I, I spent most of my early years, um, you know, roughing it out really in, in the public mental health system. It is very difficult because you're working with very vulnerable people mm-hmm. in our population that are socially and economically disadvantaged. And there's no, there's actually no glamour <laughs> in working as a psychologist in those fields. And you really do the best you can with the resources that you have. How did you find it when you first uh, came out of university and started? Uh, you know, practicing in your field, what were what were the things that challenged you that that weren't raised in the academic part of your studies? Look, I I think um, you know I I would I would dare say that most most psychologists and and, and well many psychologists come out really from. Uh, a background that's um, probably a little bit more affluent than than the people that we work with. And I think, you know, being kind of thrown into the depths of people who are socially and economically disadvantaged and really understanding from their point of view, when you actually have to work with those circumstances and work with a client or patient in those circumstances was uh, a steep learning curve for me. But it was also one that I think every psychologist needs to do. Like we, you know, there's this idealistic uh, view of, oh, you know, we can kind of really just cater to people who can pay, you know, to see a psychologist. But really, I think that the, the best training is really to work with the most vulnerable and actually understand. And if you can understand those barriers that they go through, um, I've been in houses in which, um, you know, I, I would have to to basically, you know, wash my shoes after for example, you know, in, in the most deprived areas of Melbourne, people don't understand until you've actually worked with that uh, group of how much need there is uh, to, to assist. Um, and I think that's a really steep learning curve for most psychologists, including myself. But it's also one that I think is really absolutely needed because you don't really know and you don't really, people can get very, very almost... Um, distant if, if they are not actually experiencing it um or you know with their clients or, or assisting clients or you know um and and understanding their situation and we work very intensive with that group where we're in their house so we don't actually they they are not able to come to the clinic mm. we have to go out to them because they are that disabled yeah. you know they are perhaps experiencing you know deep uh, levels of acute psychosis sometimes you know that um you know those those things and in sometimes we, we do feel, um, you know, p- potentially we have to go in groups as well just, just to kind of keep our staff safe. But I think, you know, understanding that acute end, the chronic end, um, not just people who are able to, to come to the clinic, um, that's really crucial for psychologists. Your specific area of academic study is centered around loneliness and how it can negatively impact on social functioning. What drew you into this particular area of study? That's a very, very, very good question because actually came um, out of my clinical training. So I was working, um, as I mentioned, with you know people who were very socially disadvantaged and who had really had, didn't have anyone other than uh, the mental health service people who who would visit them. And what I did find was that, um, and and I, I did my PhD training um, as well at um, this particular public mental health service and and at the University of Melbourne. And what I did find was that even though uh, this particular group had people coming to them and um, 
constantly in and out of their house. Sometimes we see people every day. Um, they ha- they felt lonely, you know, despite the level of social connection, social support, and including financial support and housing support, you know, things that case managers, for example, would provide. It really didn't matter because they didn't have the relationships that they really needed, which is reciprocated relationships with their peers, where they also felt like a valued um, member in that relationship. If you are constantly receiving services, you really start to feel uh, like a burden. You don't have any self-esteem. Um, and what we notice, and, and especially my in my particular PhD, we did find that, you know, people who were experiencing psychosis, for example, uh, they, uh, they their distress with their psychotic symptoms were moderated only when they reported that they had these social ties that were reciprocated, so that were meaningful. So it's not just them asking someone for help, but that person or their friend would also ask them for help and making them feel valued. So this idea that just because you have ties or just because you have people visiting you doesn't mean that you're going to be less lonely. It's really about those the, the meaningfulness of those relationships that's more important. So a lot of these programs would, for example, advocate that they go, they reduce social isolation and loneliness. And I really would like to see some data evaluation around that because I think most of them would say, I would agree that they would reduce social isolation, but would they reduce loneliness? I do not know. So those are two yeah. different things. That's interesting you point that out. I think about that in from, a, from you know, in my day-to-day occupation and organizing and we, it's important when building capacity or building power amongst people that there is the, when we build relationships, it's based on not a transaction as in, if I give you this, you'll give me that, but it's actually based on a, on a mutual commitment to each other to work together, to share each other's resources. Um, and I could completely understand if you were someone who was in that situation where you are lonely and you have become dependent on something that that is not a meaningful relationship. So that's right. And so, tell me more about this. You so you've obviously you've identified this and you've done your PhD, and then extrapolate how you've started to work around this in this field. So I I was very lucky to actually uh, get offered a postdoctoral research fellow at Washington University in St. Louis, and that's actually just south of Chicago, where a lot of the social neuroscience research uh, in loneliness uh, come from. So Professor Cassiopo's work, and I was actually working in a social anxiety lab, um, and I was trying to really understand what's the difference between paranoia, in, in which it was a field I was uh, studying quite a bit uh, in my PhD. What's the similarities between paranoia and social anxiety? So both really concern people. Uh, One is about the fear of others and fear of being negatively evaluated. So that's social anxiety. And then paranoia is really a fear of persecution, fear of being uh, targeted or fear of being talked about. And I really thought this idea of, you know, there must be some overlap. And and what I really uh, stumbled into is actually measuring loneliness. So how lonely are these people? And does loneliness actually predict more severe mental health issues. And um, ironically, you know, that was probably back in, I think, 2015. Um, It it sounds really uh, strange, but, you know, even though 
loneliness is not a new condition. Traditionally, it's not actually been examined. Uh, you know, it's really social isolation, as I mentioned before, it's been much more scrutinized. And really the only few, what we call longitudinal studies that have been done is Professor Cassiopeus' work where he looked at um, older adults, um, where he measured older adults in, I think it's a Chicago aging study uh, across five years. And he found that loneliness predicted depression but depression didn't predict loneliness. So they're distinct constructs, which people get confused all the time. And, and so what I really wanted to do is to say, right, okay, so what's going on in other ages? You know, we really need to extend this understanding of across this community, what's going on in the community. And also what about all the other mental health symptoms? Mm. <laughs> we have, you know, social anxiety, we have non-clinical paranoia levels that people express all the time. Um, and of course, depression, but we don't really know what those predictive relationships are. We do actually monitor people over time. And I say this, but a lot of studies will only measure these relationships at one time point. It doesn't really tell us anything about what actually drives loneliness. And so when I did the study uh, at WashU, I, I, we looked at uh, 1,010 Americans across six months and we modeled that data. And, and interestingly, um, you know, as expected in terms of the hypotheses that we have, loneliness predicted more problematic depression, more problematic social anxiety, more problematic uh, paranoia across a six month, six month period. So basically, if you were lonely at the first time point, you're more likely to be actually expressing all this poor mental health in six months. But what was really interesting was that if you were also socially anxious, you were then also more likely to be lonely. Hmm. So what that tells us is basically with loneliness types of solutions or interventions is that if someone's already experiencing a high level of social anxiety, their fear meeting people, they have a fear of being judged, they have a fear of uh, you know saying something uh, silly to humiliate themselves, you know, getting them into the group is first of all is going to be very difficult. But if you don't address the social anxiety, it's not really much of a point. So it's really important, even in even in a non-clinical level, that we don't dismiss. Oh, you know, just go at you know, you're lonely. Just just go join a group. Mm. That's great for some people, but if you have this level of social anxiety, even if it's a non-clinical level, it's going to impede your progress. Uh, so you know, those that kind of methodology. It's so important in really understanding what drives loneliness. And people don't do that. We we go with what we think makes sense, which is, oh, let's join a group or let's do a shared interest group or let's um let's try to get more friends. But those are logical th those are very logical options, but they don't work for everyone. So I think it's really important that we really build on that kind of research so that, so that we can really inform what drives loneliness. And, and the truth of the matter is it's probably more than social anxiety. It's a wide range of other things. You know, what the level of impact it influences uh, is, we don't know it. We don't know. And we need to study. So is it your living environment? You know, um, is it uh, your access to, uh, to money? <laughs> you know, all these logical things that would influence the way we interact with people and how we interact with people. All those things are important. And we really are just scratching the surface and really understanding what causes loneliness. Because there are several levels that we can look at from all the way from, from the individual, um, the, that personality, all the way to policies.
you know, so it extends across different uh, phases. Well, uh, the reason why we were very keen to get you on the podcast today, obviously, was to talk about uh, this particular area of um, study and, and mental health in relation to what is happening right now. And there's on the front page of our papers all across the world, and that is uh, coronavirus. Um, but before we sort of dive into the impacts that coronavirus are having on our community, I actually just want to get a sense from you. And I've asked all of my guests since this pandemic first began, uh, when was the moment when you first realized that this was going to have serious implications on Australian society? When did you realize that this coronavirus was going to be, oh shit, this is, uh, this is quite significant. We possibly should be paying attention to this. I think very early, very early on, um, I was very well aware of the infectious outbreaks, for example, uh, like things like the SARS and Ebola um, and the impact of, of those things. And what what I think is surprised me and probably surprised most people is that it really just the impact of COVID you know, um, really highlights not just social economic inequalities, but also that, that we are so interweaved, like we're so part of a social fabric that we didn't actually realize that, you know, and it's this economic, um, uh, I guess, stress on, on workers, for example, at the moment, we expect as psychologists a second wave of mental health problems to come and those things are very much linked and that that would be my worry really for as a, as a mental health um, researcher and understanding how we can mitigate those effects while trying to balance the public health crisis at the same time because those social restrictions that we're going through are indeed necessary to prevent outbreaks but having to weigh that out with the mental health implications down the line and we don't really know the, the depth of, of impact until probably from years to come, right? So we're really, what we're doing now is, as researchers is just projecting mm. and understanding just this phase. But we would expect, you know, those economic lo losses and, and downturn and not just, just a country, you know, recession, a global recession, those sorts of things will have impact for many years to come. So as psychologists, I think it's really important for us to think about you know, people who have not ever had mental health issues will actually start becoming more unwell and quality of life will be going down. And I don't know anyone, Stephen, that's, that's whose life hasn't been impacted on COVID. Yeah, <laughs> you know, everyone yeah. has, you know, in every single level. If you haven't lost your job now, you're probably going to lose your job at some point, yeah. right? Or you're going to have a reduction in your pay at some point. Uh, I haven't met anyone who hasn't had that situation um, or that personal impact. When I, this, the question I want to ask you now, I just realized that when I think about it, it's actually so wide scoping that you could spend probably uh, a whole year just answering. So let's maybe uh, try not to do that. Um, but yeah. I mean, how does, how does the pandemic create conditions that impact on people's mental health and in what ways? So, look, I think that, first of all, if we go back to kind of um, some of the social theories is that we, we actually rely on other people to thrive and flourish. You know, we rely on not just our partners or people that we know, we rely on the, the wider community to kind of uh, either regulate our own, own emotions, uh, make decisions. So actually, when we ha have that restricted access, it really changes our behaviors. And if it actually propels us to kind of be more in our mind and, and no one actually is able to kind of... Um, almost kind of pull up pull, pull us out of those negative thoughts um, that can actually be very detrimental on top of that there's additive effects or real real life effects in that sense of 
job losses, um, you know, being more constrained, not knowing when you are able to feed your family or pay your mortgage and having to lose your assets is actually incredibly stressful for many people. Um, and especially, and also those who might um, actually have, know someone who's ill or vulnerable or fallen ill from COVID, that is an, another added stress. So, you know, I think we can't discount the multiple factors of the things that would predict poor mental health. It's not just poor mental health to begin with, mm -hmm. it's all this other stuff that will add on to it. And also how um, this crisis is going to be managed in the a, in a longer term. So I know we've kind of put some plans in for the next six months, but post that, you know, we, we don't know. And a lot of these things are not within our control. Um, we, we did not have a say around social restrictions, for example. We were just told very immediately, this is what you've got to do to, to save lives. Um, and I, I have to say that um, there was a little bit, when, when I was when I was first giving lots of interviews at the start, um, there was a lot more uh, uh, people being very upset. Uh, and now what you see is that people have kind of adapted and changed their behavior and almost kind of habituate a little bit to the stress and um, every time we have a change is you know people have to adjust again and 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 humans we like routine <laughs> we don't really like change all that much so it's this idea of having to be a, a, a adaptable and flexible every time we hear new public health uh, guidelines in which of course we should but it will be harder for some groups and not others uh, considering your work focuses on loneliness and how it negatively impacts on um, people's social functioning, the, the pandemic and the stay-at-home stay orders have obviously created a huge national-wide sample for you to study. Um, how Are you able yourself, because you're in social, isol social isolation, are you able to perform that study right now or do you have to wait until these restrictions are lifted? Or is there, a, or are you able to right now be able to use this moment to uh, help your research? Look, I think good question again. Uh, you know, luckily for us, even pre pre COVID, we have done quite a few large scale studies about understanding the level of loneliness and what we call social isolation risk, which is the degree of contact you actually have with someone. Um, Pre-COVID, so we've had we had a database uh, already established. Uh, what we're trying to do now is to follow up the same database, but also we have um, now conducted uh, together with some international collaborators a global study, really looking at the impact of social restrictions on our loneliness, on the way we interact with each other, um, on our physical health, our mental health, and our quality of life. And we are studying these guys over uh, the period of six months. So um, what we would expect, though, is that um, obviously country to country, all levels of restrictions are different, even state to state, as you know. <laughs> you know, Victoria is a very different state to Queensland, for example. You know, we need to understand what level of social restrictions each uh, location is undergoing and actually understand the influences on loneliness. What I can say, just kind of eyeballing the data, uh, we are closing what we call the first phase of survey is that it's not so much about whether you live alone or not uh, and whether you're more, because you live alone, you're more lonely. It's actually more around who you live with. 
Um, so if you're living with family or someone a significant other, it tends to buffer your effects of loneliness. This is just based on partial data, just uh, just just to note. Um, and in a very kind of crude sense, if you're looking at just a cross-sectional data, um, but those who are living alone or those who are living with non-family members, you know, they appear to be fairly equally lonely. You know, so it's again, it really speaks about not the not about the number of people you live with, but who you're living with, and whether these people that you're living with, you feel like you have some sort of meaningful relationship with. Rightio. So it really impacts if you got really shit housemates, then that's going to lead to loneliness. Then good to note. Good to note. <laughs> yes. Um, I actually, um, I, just on that point, I always uh, give the example of uh, one of my teammates who who lived with eight housemates, oh and she uh, fell and hit her head in the bathroom, and she wasn't found to, until two days later. So, oh, you know, if you're living with eight housemates, and no one checks on you, and she actually ended up in hospital with hypothermia, because uh, she wasn't found until 48 hours later so do you see what i'm saying is this idea is really about the relationships that you have in that household as opposed to the number of people that you live with that's horrific um oh god um so actually here's a question for you that i actually wanted to ask that i hadn't um considered how do you do the? how do you conduct the research into this do you do you have specific people that you study is it through survey work and how do you track monitor that in in a very um, at, at this stage in COVID, we really are reliant on either phone interviews or online in, uh, self report interviews, which we've found to be quite equivalent to some of the face to face um, modes of data collection. Um, in this case, you know what we'll be really interested in is uh, the general population. It just doesn't matter if you have a disability or your carer or parent. We account for those things and we partial out any kind of of potential effects. So we will measure as much as possible what we think is a confounding variable or you know a variable that might influence loneliness so that's more important um and really what i'm interested in is really the wide spectrum across the population at the moment we're a little bit restricted because we are unable to access uh under 18 and that's really an important you know um, adolescents and children are actually part of our society. We should actually be measuring these guys, but because you know we're of the the nature of um, you know getting parental consent, you know we we have to we we don't know if you know who's consenting on 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 these studies are actually someone that's over eighteen. So we really just restrict that to to people over eighteen only at the moment. Uh, but it's really important for us to really extend. Uh, our research uh, post-COVID to really understand how it impacts on, on younger generations. And then from your studies, when you start to look at um, solutions to um, to loneliness, um, and as you said, look, you mentioned before about how many people have lost their job uh, because of the pandemic and are experiencing sort of inconsistencies in in uh, and lack of routine, as you put it. How can people who are out of those routines um, and uh, are maybe experiencing um you know negative feelings and and stress how can they be mindful of this what 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 do you what do you recommend you're the doctor tell us what how do we do how do we get out yes. of this right <laughs> i'll have to put my clinical psychologist hat on <laughs> uh, instead of a researcher hat so um look i think look our best guess is really you know when it comes to things like worry you know i think really assessing what is it that you have 
a level of control over and what you don't. And I often say this to clients that I do see is that if you know that worrying actually helps you get somewhere, then then that by all means go ahead and, and worry about it. So for example, you know, a typical example pre-COVID is that, you know, if I had to go to work and I, I started to worry a little bit about trying to beat traffic. And I actually got myself into the car early because I was worrying about it. Then that's what I call productive worry. But there's there's stuff that you know I I might uh, be worrying about that absolutely I have no very little influence about. Say for example, if someone really likes me or not. No, you know I could be nice and I could do all all the right things, but they just don't like me because my name is Michelle and you know they associate that name as <laughs> someone they don't like. Yeah. There's really nothing I can do about it. So really assessing. What is it that you can control? What is it that you can't control? And that the stuff that you can't control is, you know, put it on, put on a piece of paper and actually park it, you know, because they are all valid concerns. Mm. And they are also concerns that many people have, you know, whether I have a job or not. This is really the same concerns that I would have as well. Um, but there's, because there's nothing you can do about it right now. You have to park it and, and actually focus on the things you can control. What are the, even if it's minor things that you can control to make your, life that little bit easier just for the day and are you too hard on yourself or trying to achieve what you need to achieve during this time you know those are really questions to kind of take a step back and actually go reflect you know what is actually achievable during this time yep is there, are there simple activities that people can or should consider if they are feeling lonely at this point in time look i think i think what's really important is uh I think going back one step is I think a lot of people don't realize when they feel lonely. Uh, I think the word lonely comes with a lot of negative connotations. But I think first thing is to really, if you do feel that way, even if you don't, you know, uh, reach out to other people, I think the first thing is to really uh, tell yourself it's actually very much okay <laughs> to, to feel this way. Um, you're very much normal. Um, and I think most people should be seeing loneliness as a regular human need. This is how we thrive and we flourish as a species. We we needed groups and we needed other people to function and we needed um, those meaningful relationships to 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 be the best we can. And we don't if we feel like our relationships are not really meeting those needs and we feel lonely, uh, first of all, that's very normal. And that's a very, what I call regular signal for you to do something different. So see it as, as not so much that there's something wrong with you, but more that there's something that you need to change. And then think about what you can change because making a new friend is completely unreachable for many people. Um, you know, especially when you get older, making new friends is, is hard. You know, when you're younger and you're kind of embedded within the school system, making new friends is a little bit easier because your access is a little bit better. But for many people post that that stage, trying to make a new friend is a little bit trickier, you know. So if you can't make a new friend, can you change an acquaintance into a friend? Or can you make a friend a better friend? Yeah. <laughs> Actually make that meaningful relationship that increases the quality of that relationship that you have with someone. And it doesn't even have to be a friend. It can be a parent, it can be a sibling, it, you know, it can be someone that you already know that you're comfortable with, but really just building that depth of relationship into, and, and, and putting in the effort, because we all know that everything, uh, you know, takes a little bit of time and effort. Um, we, you don't need to spend money to do those things, you know, it's always about making that little effort over 
a period of time as opposed to these big gestures where you're throwing expensive parties to make friends. Like that's not what we're asking you to do is really making those little steps achievable long-term and something we chip away um, as we progress through life. And if you have lost friends, it's actually okay because again, that is a uh, regular dynamic that we all go through, right? So friends come in and out of our lives for different reasons because they are at different phases and sometimes it's not about you. So if you have lost a friend and you feel upset about it, you feel lonely, I think what's really important is to understand that there will be many friendships lost in your life, but also many friendships gained. So if we spend a lot of time kind of thinking about the friendships lost, we're actually losing that time to gain those new friendships and those new ties that could potentially be really beneficial for you. So we have all of these uh, organizations uh, out there that uh, do good work beyond Blue, Lifeline. Um, how does uh, the academia world uh, partner with those types of organizations? How is that manifested? Like how do, how do you take your research um, and provide it to these, this, I guess you'd call this industry, um, to then go out there and do good work in actually working with people in the community? That's a that's a very good question. It was actually a gap that um, I identified around 2016, and and we started this uh, organization called the Australian Coalition to End Loneliness, and now rebranded to Ending Loneliness Together. And basically, the the objective of this particular organization is to really try to form a relationship between industry and science, because what I noticed was there's a, a massive gap in in understanding what the scientists are saying and what people are rolling out um, and trying to kind of reduce that discrepancy between what people are delivering and what scientists we see as more rigorous and more effective. Um, and, you know, if we can actually channel some of that uh, information in a way that's digestible to industry and actually getting them to um, also improve the way they deliver programs, I think that would be amazing. So things like how do they know someone is actually uh, not just less socially isolated, but also less lonely? Um, how do they know if their programs work? How do they know what the cost effectiveness of those programs are? Um, you know, and, and also the training that comes with um, implementing those program evaluation. You know, there's a massive gap and difference between how scientists would do an evaluation as opposed to industry and it's not saying that it's wrong it's just two different ways mm. um and what as scientists we want to do is to always make sure that if we do say a program is effective it is effective you know and that more investment really needs to go to those kinds of programs so um and ending loneliness together really is an organization that's trying to bridge that gap and, and to have a almost a, a joint national focus on trying to get everyone kind of to, to do the same thing as a joint effort so that we can kind of make a difference. There's a number of very influential people in government that listen to this podcast. Um, so here's your chance to pitch for uh, some funding. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, what... Um, where do... Where does, where does your... Um, your area of research require support from where, where can government, sorry, let me rephrase that. Where can government play an important role in supporting the work that you guys do? Look, I, I think ending loneliness together uh, hopes to be the peak body 
for anything loneliness. So um, we need a coordinated national uh, approach to tackling loneliness. Loneliness doesn't fall into a, anyone's particular portfolio. It's every, loneliness is everyone's business, right? It affects every part of the, of, of the economy and people. Um, so it's a large area that needs coordination and it needs multipartisan support, you know. Everyone's got to learn to work together and try to do a little bit and be more coordinated to actually really uh, reduce loneliness. And and I know we call ourselves ending loneliness together. What we're really trying to do is actually get people to manage loneliness better so that it doesn't actually lead to more physical health problems, earlier mortality, poorer mental health, affect uh, workplace productivity and cost businesses, you know, so it's more of a coordinated approach and an investment into a body that can really uh, lead the way in terms of a national effort and pull everybody from every state to actually try to follow uh, certain guidelines, whether it's evaluating their programs or reporting back about, you know, how they, they're going and, and, and even training, you know, how do we actually train clinicians as well to reduce loneliness and not just reduce social isolation. There's so many things things that we can do, but it definitely needs significant uh, government support. I'm wondering about, uh, as we sort of move through this pandemic and hopefully come out the other side of it, that we see uh, changes to society and how, you know, how we, how, how we behave, how we interact with each other. Like I, I'd like to think certainly from an employee, employer standpoint and a work-life balance that um, as we come out of this, this, this crisis that employers may be a little bit more open to the idea of allowing workers to work from home and um, and maybe uh, don't force their staff to you know hop on the red eye to Sydney for a meeting that goes for 20 minutes to then fly back you know to Melbourne where they could have just done it on zoom or, or teams or something you know those kind of things right from your standpoint what are you hoping to see come out of this that can hopefully mean that there is a positive social impact born out of what has been a terrible crisis? Look, I think that the fact that we are all affected in some way and before we had to, if, if I guess many lucky, the lucky ones are able to do remote working, to really understand the value of, of um, what can be done remotely versus what can't be done remotely, but also understanding that if we are going into, say, a phase of much more acceptable remote working practices, what is it that we can do to keep workers and employers connected still, uh, ensuring that productivity is uh, maintained or probably even you know might actually increase, but making sure that that workers' health uh, and mental health uh, and that they still stay connected connected in a meaningful way uh, to to their colleagues, for example, because we know that relationships um, that are important don't just go across family and friends. Sometimes they are work relationships. Um, so what's really important is for us to understand how we can better change those work practices to actually make sure they don't compromise relationships and meaningful relationships um, and that they actually lead to better outcomes as opposed to worse outcomes. So we need those education for employers to you know, how do you, if, if, if you are starting to move into the remote working practices, how do you keep your employees um, meaningfully connected 
to your organization and what, what those structures are. And, and really, we're trying to kind of work those things out at the moment. Because <laughs> really, we obviously haven't had a, 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 a I guess this is almost, as, as I was saying, it's a, a pandemic that's kind of came out of nowhere, but also it's forcing us to to go into these change practices change practices very quickly so coming out of it I think we need to kind of have a little bit more thought about how we can balance remote working without compromising the way you feel about other people I'm sensing from certainly anecdotal evidence talking to friends and colleagues and and clients that I work with that some people are hating working from home and crave that social isolation uh, social interaction sorry in the office environment whereas others are loving working from home and discovering that they are so productive um and uh and they're they're actually dreading the 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 concept of having to return back to their their office environment um is there a disconnect between the work undertaken by researchers in mental health and the findings and recommendations being applied to in the workforce like what why are some people why do some people just love working on their own and others uh, the other way. What, what, what's going on there in our heads? That's a very good question. And I can only speak to uh, related research and it, it may uh, have to do with personality types. Um, and there are people who crave and who are more reliant on what relationships to actually satisfy some of their social needs. And sometimes it, it might even have to do with the person's personal circumstance. So if you are living alone, for example, you're more likely to be have been reliant on these external uh, social relationships to satisfy those needs. And if you're really removed, and, and some people also really place high value on face-to-face interactions as opposed to remote, right? Yeah. So, you know, it might have to do with some individual factors going on. There, there are also factors that are very, very much practical, like absolutely love my job, for example. But it takes me about a good 45 minutes to an hour to travel to work and I don't live far from work because of traffic reasons and I feel like I'm using that time really to work at home and and trying to get that balance and my productivity is higher for example because I'm not spending two hours in a day driving (laughs) you know I'm able to spend more time at home so it really depends on the person's circumstances as well uh, whether they relate to their colleagues whether they are extrovert or introvert whether they have the capacity to actually invest in, in those relationships whether it's at work or you know, use the time to invest it at home. Um, it would be really interesting to see how people actually make the transition. And I, I think, you know, a lot of research needs to go around how we make a smooth transition, <laughs> you know, and how do we get employers to be more uh, more open to remote working where it actually makes more sense. How does the academic world intervene in that and, and get in front of employers and say, hey, this is what our research has told us. And if you haven't noticed it anyway over the last four or five months or however long this is going to last, um, then, you know, you need to start to make some adjustments to your work practices. How does the academic world get involved in this kind of conversation to make these workplace practice changes? Look, I've been very, very fortunate and very lucky to be part of a research team that actually is able to reform policies in, in workplace practices. So um, I think, you know, academics being hired into these sorts of government a- agencies, I think the equivalent would be, uh, I guess, WorkSafe Victoria here um, about implementing how we return to work in, in a way that in the new COVID environment as well, how do we return to work safely 
you know, and it's not just a mental health thing, right? There's a lot, all these physical health and all these employer responsibilities that they need to do in order to allow the worker to, to return to work safely. Um, really employing academics within these organizations and actually doing good, because, you know, getting that, that actual uh, access to the population and doing good research um, to be able to implement or design new programs that would actually allow people to um, maintain or increase their workplace productivity post-COVID mm. in a new working environment. And we suspect as well that some industries that might cease to exist, right? So, <laughs> you know, it's really important for us to think about all these factors going past this, uh, I guess, immediate public health crisis. How do we get back some sense of normality and how do we function and work and how do we relate to each other in a post-COVID social environment and work environment? You know, being able to have that good academic rigorous research in these agencies is, is quite crucial and then be able to roll out and implement very quickly. So it's really working hand in hand with them. Uh, it's a fascinating area of study, um, and we really do appreciate uh, you taking time out of your pretty busy schedule to come on to the podcast today to discuss this. And I think that uh, we may have to get you back at a later date when we do eventually get out of this and find out about, uh, get a, an update, I guess, on your research and uh, evaluating your uh, your uh, the, the research you're conducting through this incredibly unique um, moment in social history. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. See you.